How many of you have dual citizenship? Would you raise your hand? If you know Jesus, you ought to have raised your hand. You know why? (laughs) You are a citizen of the city you live in, the state you live in. If you know Jesus, you are a citizen of heaven. And that's the theme of the text this morning from Philippians, the third chapter beginning at verse 17 and reading through verse 21. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern which you have in us. For many walk, of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, and who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Let's pray. Father in heaven, these are words that you have given by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that the words of my mouth today, the meditations of our hearts, would be pleasing in your sight. For we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I have taken a couple of mission trips in my day, since actually since moving here, and I have really enjoyed those times. The people were wonderful. The weather was great. And it really helped me to have a better understanding of what our missionaries go through and and how to pray for them. So if you ever have an opportunity to go on a mission trip, go for it. I think it will make an impact on your life. Whenever I've gone to another country, I've always kind of felt like well, I suppose I should, like a foreigner, right? Um, language was different. The food was a little different. Uh, the customs were different. And I just didn't quite feel at home. For the believer in Jesus, this is what it's like to live in this world. The Bible describes this as aliens. Not aliens in a weird sense, but uh, we are aliens in this world. And that's why we don't really feel like we fit in. And if we start feeling like we fit in to the culture of our day, that's probably a sign that there's something wrong in our lives. Because if we are really citizens of heaven, we're not going to feel quite at home in this world. So Paul talks about citizens of heaven, and first thing he says is that citizens of heaven are recorded on heaven's register. Recorded on heaven's register. When a baby was born in the city of Philippi, his name was registered in Rome. That's because Philippi was a Roman colony, and as a Roman colony, all of its citizens had the rights and privileges of Roman citizenship. Citizenship, And although most of the people in Philippi had never been to Rome, I would assume 
They were registered as citizens of the Roman Empire. And I believe that's the picture that Paul uses in verse 20 where he describes those of us who know Jesus as citizens of heaven. Although we live in this world now, this is, we're just sojourning here. We're just here for a while. Our, our real home is, is in glory. And, one, and our names then have been written in what the Bible calls as the, the, the book of life or the Lamb's book of life. And when your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, that's the assurance that when you stand before God, you have access to His heaven. There's a song that talks about that, right? There's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Did you sing that today? There's a new name written down in glory. My name is in the Lamb's book of life. It is recorded on heaven's register. How important is that? It is vitally important because in Revelation chapter 20, John describes this book of life. He describes this event when people stand before God. There will be books opened and then the book of life will be opened. And then John gives us this warning in Revelation 20, verse 15. It says, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Imagine that. Can you imagine what that will be like for those who don't know Jesus? I cannot think of anything that is worse than that. Your name not being in that book of life, not having access to glory, and worse than that, being thrown into the lake of fire. This is why my grandfather, when he was kind of losing his mind, not clear anymore, he was concerned about his relationship with the Lord. And the question he often asked my father was, is my name written in the Lamb's book of life? Well, it had been written in that book for years, for decades. And my dad was able to say, yes, Pa, he called him Pa, your name's been written there for many years. And Grandpa would say, oh, that's so good. That's so good. That is so good, isn't it? To know that your name can be written in that book of life. And if it isn't written there, if you're not on heaven's register... You need to get on that register. And there's only one way, and that's through Jesus. We've sung songs about the cross today. That's how our name can be written in that book of life, because Jesus has paid the price for our sins. And He can enter your name in that book of life today. So citizens of heaven are recorded on heaven's register. And I hope that is true for you today. Notice, secondly, citizens of heaven live under heaven's laws. The city of Philippi was a long way from Rome, yet as a Roman colony, its citizens lived under the laws of the Roman Empire. And this book is written to the Philippians, and we see an example of this when Paul and Silas were in the city of Philippi, when the church started there, 
in Acts chapter 16. And there's something interesting that happened. There was this slave girl that was was uh, fortune-telling and making money for her masters, and Paul cast a demon out of her. And, of course, they were upset by that. And in verse 19, it says, They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. Okay. Now, this was a lie. <laughs> this was an absolute lie, but they were using the authority of the Roman government to try to persecute Paul and Silas. And then that's exactly what they did. They were beaten and put in stocks and, and put in jail. So instead of calling themselves Philippians, they called themselves Romans. We are part of the Roman Empire and we appeal to Roman law. And that's why these men, they're, they're, they're overthrowing our city. So Paul and Silas were put in jail. And they had a right then to appeal to Roman law because they were wrongly treated. And if you jump down to verse 35 of Acts 16, it says, When day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, Release these men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and, and go in peace. And you know what Paul did? Verse 37, Paul said to them, They've beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, and have thrown us into prison, and now they're going to send us away secretly? You think you're going to do that? You're going to get away with that? And he says, no, indeed, but let them come themselves and bring us out. And so the policemen reported these things to the chief magistrates, and they were scared. They were afraid. When they heard that they were Romans, and they came and appealed to them, and when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. So even though these events occurred in Philippi, being citizens of the Roman Empire, Paul and Silas lived under the authority of Roman law. Okay? Now, if we are citizens of heaven, we live under heaven's authority. We live by standards that are different from the way that the world lives because we are aliens here. Our citizenship is in heaven and it ought to be seen in the way that we live. We don't follow the world's ways. We live under the authority of heaven. Peter mentions that in the scripture that we read this morning, 1 Peter chapter 2. Listen to what he says in verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So what's, what's the point Peter is making? He is making the point that people ought to be able to recognize that we are citizens of heaven. We are aliens here. We belong to glory. We belong to heaven. And they ought to see it in the way that we think. They have to see it in the way that we talk. They have to see it in the way that we act and even the way we react. 
Are we giving evidence that we are just sojourners here? We're strangers here. We live under the authority of heaven. I remember going into a glass store to get some tempered glass for our porch. And when I walked in that store and the lady greeted me, I said, you're a Finlander, aren't you? Oh, yes, I am. How did you know? As soon as you started talking. I grew up among the Finns, I said, and I know what they talk like. <laughs> she said, yeah. People say I got an accent, yeah, my Finnish accent. She talked like a Finn, right? And so the way we talk, the way we live, ought to give away where we belong, that we are citizens of heaven. I remember hearing about a young man that was going to work at a lumber camp for the summer, and, and they warned him, if they find out that you are a Christian, you are in trouble. They will, they will make it hard for you. So he said, well, I can, I can handle that for, for three months for the summer job. And, and so they saw him in the fall then and said, how did it go? How did they treat you as a Christian? He said, they didn't find out. Didn't find out, huh? Is that the way we live our lives? We say we love Jesus, but, oh, I don't know. I don't want people to find out. I hope they know. I hope it is so evident in the way that you live that they say, you know, you're, you're an alien here. You're, you're, you're a foreigner. You don't fit in here. Because we live under the standards that God has established in, in His Word. Thirdly, citizens of heaven boast in heaven's cross. Paul had much to say about the cross in his epistles. He cherished this cross. 1 Corinthians 1.18, he says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Ephesians 2.16, Paul says that both Jew and Gentile are reconciled to God through the cross. Colossians 2.14, Paul says that Jesus took away our debt, having nailed it to the cross. And that's why Paul says in Galatians 5.14, But may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus. Warren Wiersbe says the cross of Jesus is the theme of the Bible, the heart of the gospel, and the chief source of praise in heaven. So when we get to heaven, you know the Lord? The thing that you will sing about the most, the thing that you will praise God for the most, is that cross. And that lamb that was slain, that Lamb that was sacrificed for your sins. You turn to Revelation chapter 5 and you see those, those worship scenes in, in heaven. And, and you, you see in verse 9, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book, to break its seals, for you were slain. And you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Verse 11, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory 
and blessing. So if that's what we're going to do in heaven, if we are going to gather around the throne singing praise to the Lamb who was slain, don't you think it would be a good idea to start here? <laughs> to praise the One who gave His life on the cross. We ought to boast in the cross. Paul says, God forbid that I should boast in anything except the cross. And yet if you look at what Paul says here, there were many in his day, they were not boasting in the cross. They may have professed to follow Jesus, but Paul said they they didn't live that way. Verse 17, he says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk after the pattern you gave, that you have in us. And he says, For many walk of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Enemies of the cross. And Paul says there are many of them. And it brings great sorrow to my heart to know that people are actually enemies of that place that brought salvation. And he goes on then in verse 19 to describe how they were enemies of the cross. Enemies of the cross live only to fulfill their physical desires. Paul says their God is their appetite. Or their God is their stomach, some translations say. And this word refers to the abdomen and particularly the stomach. And I suppose that's one way that people live a fleshly life. Uh, Some people say that they live to eat and some people say they eat to live. These people are living to eat. So it could be in a physical sense, but it's probably used metaphorically to refer to what one author describes as the unrestrained, sensual, fleshly, bodily desires. In other words, it's an excessive focus on satisfying my needs. Here's what I want, and here's what I'm going to do to satisfy those needs. This is such a deceptive philosophy that some Christians have fallen into it. Uh, Tony Walter warns in in his book, his book is entitled Need, the new religion. And he says, it is, a fas- it is fashionable to follow the view of some psychologists that self is a bundle of needs. And that personal growth is the business of progressively meeting these needs. And he says, many Christians go along with such beliefs. One mark of the almost total success of this new morality is that the Christian church, traditionally keen on mortifying the desires of the flesh, on crucifying needs of the self in pursuit of Christ-likeness, has eagerly adopted the language of needs for itself. He says, we now hear that Jesus will meet your every need as though God were there simply to service us. That's a common Focus today among some Christians that it's, it's all about you living your good life now, your best life now. And here's how you can be better at this. Here's how you can be more happy. Here's how you can be. And there's, you know, five points on how you can, you know, how, how you can use Jesus to make 
your life better. That sound familiar? We don't have any, hardly any Christian bookstores anymore, but if you were to go into Christian bookstores, there are so many self-help books written today. Whatever happened to denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Him? Paul says, an enemy of the cross is, is thinking that, that it's all about us. What, what, how can God make my life better, or easier, happier, or richer? Enemies of the cross. And he says, enemies of the cross boast in that which they ought to be ashamed of. Notice that phrase. He says, their glory is in their shame. They don't try to hide their sin. They flaunt it. They are proud of it. Here's the way I'm going to live my sinful life, and you'd better embrace it, accept it. I mean, that's the culture in which we live today. John MacArthur says, This is the most extreme form of wickedness when the sinner's most wretched conduct before God is his highest point of self-exaltation. Read that again. The sinner's most wretched conduct before God is his highest point of self-exaltation. This was happening in the church at Corinth. First Corinthians 5.1, Paul says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind that it does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And Paul says, You've become arrogant, and you have not mourned instead. How can that happen in a, a church? And yet it's happening in... Church is all over the place, isn't it? We are to embrace all kinds of immoral things and, and flaunting it and, you know, enemies of the cross. Enemies of the cross think only in terms of this life, the things of this world. Paul says they set their minds on earthly things. We sang about that already, didn't we? Setting our mind on earthly things. So it's obvious that these people had not embraced the cross. Because what does the cross do? What does the sacrifice of Jesus do? It sets us free from the power of sin. The cross enables us to die to sin that we might live a new life. But these people that Paul is describing, he said they know nothing of this power. They are enemies of the cross. Henry Bosch, writing in Our Daily Bread some years ago, he says, In 1833, Charles Darwin went to the South Sea Islands looking for the missing link. <laughs> he studied the cannibals who lived there, and he, was, he concluded that no creatures anywhere were more primitive. And he was convinced that nothing on earth could possibly lift them to a higher level. And so he thought, this fits with my evolutionary theory. Well, 34 years later, he returned to the same islands. To his amazement, there were churches there. There were schools there. There were people singing hymns of praise to God there. And the reason was that missionary John G. Patton had been there proclaiming the truths of salvation and God transformed that culture. And that's what the cross does. Not just transform individual lives. It transforms cultures. It transforms societies. It transforms communities. When that message is proclaimed and that message is embraced, 
changes people's lives. That's why we boast in the cross. Citizens of heaven boast in heaven's cross because it's the cross of Jesus that transforms our lives. So there's the question. Has the cross transformed your life? You know Jesus today. You've been set free from sin's condemnation and sin's power, living in a way that the world says, hmm, something different about that man. Something different about that gal. Jesus makes that difference. Notice finally, citizens of heaven are looking for heaven's Lord, looking for the day that Jesus comes again. When you've been gone from home for a while, isn't it good to get back home? How many times have you said, oh, there's no place like home, right? <laughs> no place like home. That is true for the believer in Jesus. And Paul says in verse 20 that believers eagerly wait, eagerly wait for the day that Jesus comes again and takes us home. home. Look at verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we wait for Him? Verse 21, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to the homegoing of the believer, what a glorious day that will be. That's when our salvation will be completed. We will see Jesus face to face. We will say goodbye to a sinful world. We will no longer have a sinful nature. And our bodies are going to be transformed. Paul says that, God, that he will, Jesus will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. What a glorious hope. I've wondered sometimes, what will I look like? What will, it, what will it be like to get a new body? I think I'm needing one. My dad often used to say, you know, when I get a new body, he said, I hope it's a skinny one. He said, I've had to live in this kind of plump one all these lives. He said, I'd like to have a nice, nice skinny one. I wouldn't mind, mind that either. But the older we get, right, as believers in Jesus, the more we long for that day. Getting older comes with some challenges, doesn't it? Any amens from those of you in the, the Medicare stage of, of life, right? It comes with some challenges. Judy's dad used to say, getting older ain't for sissies. Huh? <laughs> but a day is coming when our bodies will be transformed. And it won't take long. And what Paul says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. How long does it take to twinkle your eye? I think someone measured it one time, and it was obviously less than a second. The twinkling of an eye. If you don't believe me, here's what it says. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed.
Ready for that day? We will be changed. There was a man in Cheshire, England, that said several years ago on Christmas Eve, gotten the kids to bed, and they were just sitting by the fire, husband and wife, and suddenly the little girl, Carol, was startled by the sound of music outside of the door, followed by her rushing down the stairs to the living room and saying, Mommy, Mommy, Jesus is here. Well, it was the Salvation Army band that was playing down through the street, but he said to see the, the, the smile on her face, the joy, thinking, Jesus is here. One day, that's what we're going to say. That's what we experience, we who know the Lord. Jesus is here. And then we'll be really home, right? We will leave this world that we are just sojourners. We're like Abraham, just living in tents. We look for a city, Hebrews 11 says, that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So are you, do you have dual citizenship? Can you say this world is not my home? Just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. And when you have that hope, that certain hope, that assurance, it makes a difference in the way you live, doesn't it? It ought to. I think of the missionary that came back to the United States on the same boat with one of the presidents, President Roosevelt, I think it was. And as they came closer to shore, there was this group of people standing on the pier, and he looks at his wife and he says, Look, honey, they're welcoming us home. Well, not one of those people standing there was welcoming the missionaries home. It was welcoming the president who had been hunting in Africa. And for a moment, this missionary man says, is that the thanks we get? Giving our lives to serve the Lord and we come back and the president has been hunting and has all these people waiting for him and there's not a single soul waiting for us when we come home. His wife was very wise. All she said was, honey, remember, we're not home yet. We're not home yet. Our citizenship is in heaven. and We can praise God for that. It makes a difference in how we live in this world. And it's our hope, our eternal hope, to be gathered around the throne and singing those songs about the cross. Worthy is the Lamb. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you that we can say that our names are written in the book of life because of Jesus. And we eagerly await a Savior from there who will transform our, our bodies of, of humble estate to, to the body like that of Jesus. Lord, help us to live in light of that, to rejoice in that. Thank you that we are citizens of heaven. By faith in Jesus, for we pray in his name.